Thank you all for joining us today for um, Critical Care Grand Rounds. Um, as some of you may have heard the chatter before we got started, um, this is Dr. Sarah Walster, um, and she's an associate professor of neurology at University of Washington in Seattle. Um, uh, I was fortunate to get introduced to her through Nick Morris, um, and who really told me this is an amazing topic and you have to have this person come speak here. Um, and this is really going to be, you know, so something that's so interesting to our uh, fellows and our faculty. Um, Dr. Walster and I had to, um, you know, uh, change the the timing of the talk. And so she was actually scheduled for last year. And I felt so disappointed, like, oh, man, we're maybe not going to be able to get her back. So I'm just absolutely uh, giddy and excited to finally have her here. Um, so Dr. Walster, thank you so much for being here today and for for sharing this talk on managing the breathing brain. Um, I'm just absolutely so excited to finally get to hear uh, about this. Um, and and um, Nick, I didn't mean to step on your toes. I didn't see you on it first. Um, but thank you for making this suggestion and this introduction and for uh, bringing Dr. Walster here to share with us uh, for the critical care curriculum. Oh, hey, Is Nick. There, sorry, Hello? I'm late. <laughs> no problem. You made it just in I, time. I got caught up in clinical care, as happens. But thanks so much for coming. Um, just as a, a, a brief personal introduction. So Sarah um, was my chief resident. Uh, when I was uh, a trainee at Mass General, and I learned a tremendous amount from her and continue to do so. So I'm, I'm really excited um, about this talk. And um, Sarah, I think, um, has kind of taken on an interest in some of the areas of neurocritical care that are, are really paramount to taking care of patients, but um, neglected in terms of the research interest involved. And um, I think she's kind of leading the way in thinking about some of the uh, brain-lung interactions um, that we deal with every day, but there's not a lot of guidance out there. So Sarah's going to give us some guidance in this area. So thanks so much, Sarah. Awesome. Uh, thanks, Andrew and Nick both for the kind introduction. I'm super excited and honored to be here. And thanks for having me back again, um, despite that initial cancellation. Um, Nick's one of my favorite colleagues ever, and you guys are also lucky to work with him. Um, and I hope that sometime I can come in person. Um, Nick's definitely also participated a lot in our Seattle conferences. So I'm Super happy to be here today. Uh, this is one of my favorite topics, and I'll uh, mainly focus on mechanical ventilation and, and acute brain injury. It's different. Um, I have no conflicts of interest or relevant financial disclosures. I receive a couple of institutional grants, and um, uh, I'm also a PI for an NIH-funded uh, trial on subarachnoid hemorrhage. Uh, I'm a site PI for the VentiBrain study, which will be mentioned in this talk, um, but unfunded. Um, so, yes, mechanical ventilation is your acute brain injury. There are a few things uh, that are unique. Um, and actually just looking at larger uh, mechanical ventilation cohorts, um, it's pretty notable that there's actually a substantial proportion of patients with severe acute brain injury that comprise uh, patients who need mechanical ventilation worldwide. Uh, but despite that, um, it's kind of depending what papers you look at, it's usually 20, 25 percent, sometimes even a little higher. Uh, but despite that, the evidence for uh, how to manage this population is very scarce. Um, and these patients are often underrepresented in trials and often actually excluded, uh, often for concerns around um uh, perfusion of the brain or um, elevated ICP. Um, and I'll highlight that a little more. But unfortunately, that um, leaves us a little bit in uh, a data-free zone. Uh, and uh, again, patients that have um, elevated ICPs or um, uh, concerns for uh, diminished perfusion or um, are at risk for um, perfusion-related events are usually, um, again, there. there's just um, no good data in terms of our guidance on what to do. Some unique considerations are uh, that uh, because of these concerns, especially around SP ventilator settings and ABG targets may have to be different uh, in some patients, maybe not in all. And I think that is uh, a little bit of this problem with patients being excluded from these trials, because um, 
Some may um, apply this data to these patients without really thinking about the unique considerations. Others may be hesitant to apply uh, proven therapies with good evidence and withhold it, and that may also not be ideal. Um, I'll briefly touch a little on brain-lung crosstalk. Um, the brain and lung, there are many bidirectional intricate pathways uh, in which the brain and lung and critically ill patients influence each other. And then I'll ha highlight some areas of conflict uh, that uh, we may run into when managing uh, patients with acute brain injury, especially those with uh, lung injury and ARDS. Uh, and then I'll speak a little bit about the challenge of liberating uh, patients with mechanical ventilation and um, and uh, predicting exhibition success as well as the optimal timing of tracheostomy. Um, so I'll get started with vent settings, ABG targets, brain-lung connections, and then extubation trait decisions. So in general, uh, just some special consideration. Um, again, not a lot of this is uh, guided by data, um, but for example, just talking about the vent mode that patients should be in. And um, there's actually no direct good trials. Um, you know, um, it's, I think there's always a little bit of uh, selection based on the indication, and there's always rationale. So for example, uh, if the ICP needs to be controlled, if there's need for acid-based control or just vent synchrony or lung injury, uh, a controlled mode is used to take control of these. Um, however, there, many patients are intubated for impaired airway protection, but actually have a fairly intact respiratory drive. Respiratory drive is often lower down in the brainstem, and those patients can often just be in spontaneous modes. Um, and again, what I have found in speaking to colleagues and working at different places is that practice are often institutional. I would say here at Harborview, uh, we're kind of an assist control place, and everyone is an assist controlled as a default. Uh, and often when patients are on pressure support ventilation, we rest them at night. And it's something, uh, you know, when Nick and I trained, um, we often had patients just on pressure support ventilation. And uh, so I have usually, especially when there is, really weird to synchronize and you end up sedating the patient more and more and the patient can tolerate it from an oxygenation standpoint, actually try to switch to spontaneous modes. And I find that in some cases, um, it decreases the need for sedation. The patients are more comfortable. It's less of a stimulator in patients that have some parasympathetic, uh, sorry, sympathetic hyperactivity. Um, but again, there's no clear data. And I've seen a lot of different opinions and preferences. There's some that's saying, um, you know, you, it's more physiologic. You work your breathing muscles. There's others that are saying, you know, you can de-recruit. Um, and so again, there more data is needed. Um, and adjusting tidal volume peeps, um, you know, uh, you know, trying to, you know, by driving pressure, kind of get, you know, the right driving pressure or titrate uh, to P plat. Um, uh, those may affect uh, ICP mostly by impacting PCO2, but also by just changes in venous return from the brain. Um, in terms of PO2 targets, um, both hypoxia and hyperoxia in various trials have been shown to be detrimental. Uh, so likely the PO2 targets needed and the guidelines actually address that have to be a little higher in neuro patients. We don't know exactly where the ends of that U-shaped curves are and what the goal should be. But um, there are there is this widespread opinion that uh, an acutely hypermetabolic injured brain uh, may need a slightly higher PO2 than what most, for example, ARDS protocols do. Um, here on the right is uh, an image from a recent study by Chiara Raba looking patients in cardiac arrest. And there are some studies also in subarachnoid hemorrhage that kind of show that both on the lower and the higher end, uh, on the lower end, presumably due to secondary brain injury, due to worsening hypoxic injury, and on the higher end, um, probably uh, due to um, yeah, oxygen radicals. Um, but yes, there is a U-shape somewhere and uh, the exact thresholds remain to be established. There's likely also some individualized thresholds depending on the type of brain injury uh, and the extent of the brain injury in each individual patient. Uh, after uh, some promising results in BOOST2, uh, the BOOST3 trial is underway looking at a PBTO2 and ICP-guided approach. 
uh, and just uh, oxygen delivery to the brain is also a topic. Uh, the Sahara trial is another trial. And there's, there's several trials looking at transfusion uh, practices and uh, hemoglobin goals. I'm a bit of a skeptic personally, just uh, seeing that many of these trials in the general critical literature haven't panned out, but uh, specifically in patients, for example, with cerebral vasospasm, um, transfusion used to be part of the Triple H. And um, so this is being more investigated. In terms of PCO2 targets, I think that's a key value that all of us neurointensivists pay great attention to because it's such a powerful mediator of the cerebral vasculature um, and a higher PCO2 causes vasodilatation, uh, which can actually... In- or is thought to in some ways enhance perfusion of the brain, but can also contribute to elevated ICPs. Um, just in terms of looking at outcomes, and um, you know, this is just one publication summarizing many studies, but both hyper and hypocapnia have been associated with worse outcomes. Uh, I think it's always kind of a little bit of a trade-off uh, between ICP and perfusion. If you have patients with really high ICPs, a trauma patient or someone that has bad, you know, cerebral edema and is swelling, um, Having a higher PCO2 may be detrimental. Um, that being said, again, that effect on perfusion um, may be a good one. And it was actually recently the TAME trial got published in cardiac arrest patients uh, looking at uh, PCO2 PC goals and a slightly higher target range with the hope that that would enhance perfusion. Uh, unfortunately, it did not show um, an outcome benefit. Um, uh, there used to be this widespread practice of hyperventilating neuropatients. And it's still pretty commonly done in the operating room setting because it's a very short-term, powerful intervention to lower ICP in the setting of an acute crisis. Um, however, longer-term hyperventilation is thought to be harmful because firstly, the effect is lost after a couple hours. Um, you can get rebound uh, ICP crisis from going from hypo to normal carbia. Um, and also just hypocarbia kind of in the kind of you know, 20s range can cause cerebral vasoconstrictions and infarcts as well. So it's it's a trade-off probably keeping things in a normal range. But in some patients with really high SCPs where all the kind of deterred therapies are thrown at them, it may be worth uh, targeting a slightly lower range, kind of you know, 30 to 35s. Um, and again, a lot of uh, places, uh, cardiac arrest protocols have a slightly kind of on the higher side um, PCO2. Um, a couple of years ago, there was a... Um, uh, consensus, international consensus panel led by Chiara Roba, uh, who's pioneered a lot of that work and Robert Stevens, uh, from Hopkins, um, uh, <laughs> who, um, basically looked at just what is there in terms of the data. And I think really what they did is they beautifully highlighted a lot of the evidence and uh, data gaps. Um, and they acknowledged that there was overall very weak evidence when there were strong recommendations. They were still based on no evidence or very little evidence. And, um, they did acknowledge that most of their recommendations were mostly good practice statements. Um, and, you know, they recommended kind of classical things that it's worth considering to be HBO GCSS and eight, although that's mostly based on the TBI literature. And there's some literature that, you know, says that maybe you shouldn't just blindly go based on GCS and some controversy around that. Um, they were unable to comment really on non-invasive uh, uh, ventilation. Uh, and then they did recommend a slightly higher, uh, or actually a substantially higher PO2 threshold uh, for neuro uh, patients, uh, patients with brain injury. Um, recommended kind of, you know, keeping PCA2 in a normal range. Um, were a little vague about or a little cautious about therapeutic hyperventilation, recommended it only in the short term. Um, and then uh, said, you know, PEEP, LPP prone positioning, you know, is one should utilize um, as in any other ICU patient uh, if there's no concern for elevated ICP. And then they did say that they would be unable to provide any recommendations for those with elevated ICP. And so I think the big gray zone and uncertainty is for those patients that have ARDS and need these treatments, but also are in a window where they're swelling and uh, there's a concern for decrease, increased ICP and potentially herniation. So those are the guidelines. Let's look at the practices. There was a survey, and uh, it's now a few years old, uh, but there was an ESICM survey in 2018 to 19, looking uh, at around 687 respondents. They were mostly intensivist anesthesiologists. Um, and 
uh, less than half, kind of 40% required have, uh, reported having a protocol, uh, center protocol specifically for brain injury patients, um, and only a third reported having a weaning protocol. And mostly protocols were there for TBI. Um, and then just looking at the uh, use of kind of various tidal volumes, uh, it's interesting because just um, in the kind of 150 to 300 range, you know, most reported using six to eight cc's, you know, about a third said that they would, uh, you know, use, consider using four to six cc's. But looking at the really, you know, moderate to severe ARDS range, actually only 53% reported being comfortable using four to six cc's. Um, the highest PEEP, um, uh, up to 41% were comfortable using a PEEP of 15 in brain injured patients. And then in those with ICP concerns, um, it was the highest that most were willing to go to. It was 10 or the highest that people were reported uh, being willing to utilize. Um, 69% saying that they're comfortable utilizing recruitment maneuvers. So um, again, substantial proportion did not. Um, and only 63% that they would prone. Um, this data was uh, obtained pre-pandemic. I would suspect that since the pandemic, um, you know, with the COVID pneumonia, uh, and COVID ARDS uh, proning became so much more commonplace that I would suspect or hope that um, there's a little bit more um, implementation of this practice. But I'll speak a little more about prone positioning um, soon. And then 47% said that they would even consider ECMO in a brain injured patient. Um, there was another analysis of looking at three uh, trials, larger trials, uh, that looked at mechanical ventilation practices between 2004, 2010, and 2016 and found an increased uptake in um people being willing to use lung protective ventilation or low tidal volume ventilation um, and also total duration. Um, there was also significant increase in the use of just uh, pressure support ventilation in the brain injured population. Um, uh, however, no differences in outcome noted. Um, here's an interesting study recently. It was a, a sub-analysis, uh, again, led by Chiara Raba um, to the left are my kids in Ireland uh, and they uh, changed the phone booth to defibrillators, which pretty awesome. My kids thought it was funny. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, so this uh, is a secondary analysis of the TTM2 trial, um, just looking at various vent parameters and uh, how they may have uh, influenced outcomes. Um, and the respiratory rate and driving pressure were the two parameters that were associated with six-month mortality, uh, as well as neurological outcomes. Uh, there was also the mechanical powers looked at. Mechanical powers thought to be this um, variable that is basically composite variable, um, incorporating various vent parameters. And uh, Gattinoni had uh, put this forward, kind of hypothesizing that ventilator-induced lung injury is actually not just driven by just the tidal volumes or just the rate or just the PEEP, but that's actually, um, they derived this formula basically as a composite um, value that's a surrogate of the whole energy delivered uh, to the respiratory system by the ventilator. Um, and so um, in the study, they looked at mechanical power, which was associated with six-month mortality. Um, there's also a composite formula that was um, uh, that was basically derived from an ARDS cohort um, that uh, reflected the elastic components and the more kind of dynamic components of mechanical power um, and showed that these were kind of, in a mediation analysis, the factors that were most relevant within all the event parameters. And that was also associated with both mortality and neurological outcome. Um, so this is some of our own data and a, a shameless self-plug. Uh, so we actually looked at the ENIO study. It's an extubation cord study, which I'll go into a little later when I speak about that. Uh, but we actually looked at the mechanical power. Um, and this study collected vent um, variables, ABG, uh, you know, vent parameters at hospital day one, three, and seven. And so we looked at uh, these power values and looked at uh, various outcomes, hospital mortality, reintubation, tracheostomy, and developing ARDS. And... Um, Actually, mechanical power was at various time points associated with all of these outcomes, uh, but associations were the strongest on hospital A1, which was actually surprising. We didn't suspect that, especially in the brain injured cohort. Um, and between hospital A1 and three, 
the characteristics of the um, cohort was pretty similar. The patients that were included for each analysis. Uh, however, there are a ton of patients that were extubated between hospital A1 and 3 that, you know, are probably patients that got intubated in for a procedure or, you know, had hydrocephalus that got better or, you know, just got extubated quickly. Um, but mechanical pawn, all of um, these was... Um, was um, predictive of hospital mortality, actually also ICU uh, mortality and reintubation, which was interesting. Uh, the trach part, maybe not as interesting because, uh, you know, that may have been selection. Again, this is prospective observational data. So um, conclusions about causality are somewhat limited. Um, the thresholds in general also, so there are studies looking at mechanical power in the general critical care population, which suggested a injurious threshold, a potentially injurious threshold around 17 joules. Uh, whereas um, for um, brain injury populations, actually even at lower thresholds. And that surprised us, especially since the other cohorts uh, in the ICU population were ARDS cohorts. And so one thought process may be that those ARDS cohorts were just sicker and their lungs were already pretty injured and they were going to do badly anyway. I think um, another question is, is there are there any brain-lung interactions and is the brain just kind of um, an injured brain kind of more susceptible and would it mediate ventilator or lung injury um, at even lower thresholds. But again, it's very hard to kind of jump to causal conclusions here and randomized controlled uh, data as needed. Uh, we actually did a little bit of a mediation analysis and we actually looked at each single vent parameter and among these driving pressure, um, uh, looking at tidal volume, PEEP, driving pressure, uh, P-plats, um, uh, looking at all of these vent parameters uh, and respiratory rate driving pressure was the one with strongest association with outcomes. And we haven't published that yet, but there is another paper coming um, that shows the driving uh, pressure at various time points. And again, at lower thresholds than the 15 um, that was shown in the Amato paper um, and their mediation analysis, driving pressure emerged as um, a key determinant of outcome independent of um, tidal volumes uh, and compliance um, we also adjusted for compliance and found that driving pressure emerged as a strong variable. However, um, it was only significant starting at hospital day three. So this mechanical power seemed to kind of, you know, pick up something earlier than that. Um, and more on that to come soon. We're actually working on that uh, manuscript. In general, what's needed is in addition um, to, you know, just looking at kind of hospital-based outcomes, long-term neurologic outcomes, really patient family-centric outcomes, and the reasons for these outcomes. And again, a lot of that data comes from prospective observational studies. So, um um, randomized controlled uh, trials at some point I needed. Um, what I always shook my head about before I worked on this particular paper is uh, that in many of these trials, we just throw together brain injury. Um, and I think to any neurologist, you know, an ischemic stroke is not the same as a TBI, is not the same as a subarachnoid hemorrhage or a cardiac arrest patient. It's, those are very different populations. And we actually tried to analyze, but it's often hard. Um, you lose a lot of statistical power because a lot of the ventilator models, you know, have um, all the ABG parameters, several markers of disease severity. And, um, you know, it's, it's just easier to have a bigger sample and there's some commonalities, but ideally you'd compare how subtypes of severe acute brain injury would do. Um, and then it would be um, really interesting to just directly compare thresholds um, in uh, acute brain injury versus other populations using similar forwards and methodology, um, time and circumstances and adjusting for all that. And then just looking at the impact um, of mechanical ventilation parameters in ICP and ICP management and not just looking at kind of daily values. A lot of these large studies have collected daily value on vent parameters in ICP. And as we all know, there's so much dynamic stuff happening in ICP and ICU patients, um, both in terms of IC, ICP fluctuations as well as uh, vent adjustments. Um, and then just assess uh, more, uh, concretely assess uh, lung uh, low tidal volume ventilation and severe acute brain injury. And there's some trials underway showing that um, I think a very exciting trial that's on horizon is the VentiBrain study. And they currently have collected the data. It's about 3,000 patients uh, from, I think, um, you know, 70 different institutions, or I think actually a little more 
uh, with mixed types of acute brain injury. And it's another prospective observational study. It looks at vent parameters, including mode, setting, ABG values, but also things like the chest X-ray, volume status, um, and then other markers of just systemic uh, disease injury, um, kidney injury, and all of that. And then ICP, CPP values, therapy intensity levels, and things that are done to treat the ICP. And looks um, at that uh, for every day of mechanical ventilation. Um, it includes six-month outcomes. Um, so it'll be a very interesting study. Um, and I think there'll be a lot of different data coming out of that. And um, if anyone's interested in working that more, there's um, several U.S. contributors. We're actually, we were one of the sites. And on the right is the study team that contributed from Harborview. Um, the Boost 3 studies mentions coming out. There is another study looking at um, SpO2 kind of goals, uh, ProLobby, um, and another study actually now investigating um, protective uh, um, uh, tidal volumes. Um, jumping to cases, a real uh, life case that we cared for a couple of years ago in our units, a 32-year-old man who fell off a cliff. Uh, he was hiking uh, at Hurricane Ridge in the Olympic Peninsula, and it's a beautiful picture of it. Uh, he came with a relatively small septural bifrontal contusion that's blossomed. Um, uh, he actually didn't have the largest amount of DEI, but he de developed a lot of cerebral edema uh, and ICP issues. He also had rib fractures, and he had a C2 fracture in his place in the collar. Um, because of poor exam, um, he had a Lycox placed, his intracranial pressures were elevated, and he had a ton of pupillary changes. He actually never required a crany, but he got a ton of doses of hypersmolar therapy um, and uh, was sedated and actually also got neuromuscular blockade um, for his ICPs. Um, around hospital day five, he was known to have increased secretions. And the thing was, he also had neuromuscular blockade for several days. Um, and so um, the RTs kept coming to us saying, we're really not getting anything up. The secretions are really thick, but they're really deep. And they're kind of worried that the neuromuscular blockade is kind of, you know, not helping with um, clearance of his secretions. Uh, he was found to have an MSSA pneumonia, um, ended up on two vasopressors, went to septic shock, and then uh, at some point had a PDF ratio of 62, um, sorry, uh, PAO2 of 62 and 100% FIO2. Um, People saturated up to 12. Um, his compliance was really poor. We went down to six cc's per kick and his plats were still really high. Um, and he was some, he had the ICP monitor in and because he was uh, so sick and, you know, had, was both hypoxemic and hypercarbic respiratory failure, uh, we had no room to go on his tidal volumes. Uh, the ECMO team actually stormed into the bedside and uh, my colleague, Dr. Chesnut, Randy Chesnut's, uh, one of the neurosurgeons, trauma neurosurgeons here, um, who's done a lot of trials on ICP monitoring and he, his trials were actually done in Bolivia and Ecuador. And he's the man that did the trials, but he's also someone that just likes to come to the bedside and pull the monitor. And I remember he wanted to pull the monitor. Um, we we're talking about proning the patient. And whenever I've proned patients uh, with severe acute brain injury, I always find I really need to talk to my team. As, as anything, I see is such a team sport, but there's always tons of concerns from team members that are very valid. So what about the ICP monitor? Could it fall out? What's going to happen with the ICPs? Will they be very high? Uh, and this guy was in a C collar, and that was a huge concern. And there were a lot of conversations, and the neurosurgery team actually kept telling us, ortho is on for spine, so please talk to them. <laughs> like, you're here, we need to prone the patient. And um, then our trauma IC nurses told us we can't prone in a collar, and it went back and forth. I love to hear about your experiences on that. Um, and, you know, ideally, you don't want to have these discussions for two or three hours. You just want to prone the patient. And uh, Randy Chesna wanted to take the monitor out because he was like, you know, his, his oxygenation is really bad and that's bad for the brain too. And, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to supinate him? So SCPs go up. And I was kind of like, I want to know. I want to maybe, you know, I also I was really interested, but, you know, I want to, you know, treat it. If I see it, I may, you know, um, treat with hypersmolar therapy, do other things about it. 
Um, but yeah, anyway, so we did end up running him, but more on that later. Um, There's also another super interesting case. I saw a 41-year-old woman, actually this May, uh, history of polysubstance abuse. She collapsed, and no one was actually really sure whether she actually uh, arrested or was pulseless, but she got bystander CPR for a little bit and then was found to have a ruptured aneurysm. I'll show her um, imaging here. It's a ruptured ACOM aneurysm. Um, hydrocephalus, she had an EVD place, she went to coiling. And then I've actually never seen that. Um, uh, Bay Leslie Mosby, who some of you may know, I know Nick knows, but he's uh, one of my colleagues here and actually a chair of neurology. And he was saying that he's seen it uh, due to pressure effect on the stalk. But this patient went to severe DI, it's just dumping urine, uh, her sodium shot up. And, you know, initially, um, TCDs were flat. Um, you know, she was given some fluid replacement. And then as we corrected the sodium, her ICP became more elevated. And then she got a fair amount of fluids. Endocrine got involved and, like, you know, was trying to correct the DI. And I think we probably overshot a little on the fluids. Uh, she had a lot of ventus synchrony issues. And that was thought to be due to um, her needing high amount of pain medications and probably having high tolerance towards sedation. Um, was eventually heavily sedated. And then simultaneously, her Lindegard's ratios shot up. Um, she had Lindegard ratios at some point actually above six and uh, high peak velocities, um, high concern for vasospasm. Uh, at the same time, was just dumping urine. Um, had also gotten volume overload at that time. It was a little bit of a mess. Uh, and then had a PDF ratio of 70 to 80s. And with her, it was actually interesting because we put her on LPV. It didn't really help. It didn't really improve her oxygenation. Her plats were actually never that bad. Um, but when we put her in LPV, her ICPs actually became elevated because her PCO2 went up and her IC, that, you know, she had ICP issues all along. And her ICPs were also PEEP sensitive. We tried to titrate the PEEP and we found that her best PEEP, according to PV loop maneuver, was actually 14. And, uh, but when we raised it, actually, um, her oxygenation got worse. Um, she got hemodynamically more unstable and, um, her ICPs shot up to the high 30s. Um, we eventually did prone her. Um, and it was interesting because my fellow kept saying that, uh, her ICPs actually every time when we prone her went up. With some treatment and some CSF diversion and some positioning, actually, she got better. And more on that later. Uh, but I remember the fellow kept calling me and saying, when I turn her head to the right, the ICPs are really high. And when I turn her arm this way, they go up. But when I turn her head to the left and pull her arm this way, they go down. And so I, I didn't know what to make of that. I said, okay, then turn her head to the left, please. Uh, but yes, we did prone her. What was interesting her is that her chest x-ray didn't look too bad. Uh, she definitely at some point was a little volume overloaded. And, you know, it looks fluffy. There's maybe a little bit... and. Uh, I moved that, that CT is overlaying the, um, the margin, the angle, but there was a little bit of a plural fusion, maybe. Uh, she definitely, we did a chest CT to also look for P and other causes. And she had a lot of ground glass and a lot of kind of, you know, air bronchograms and just multifocal aspirations. So probably had just multifocal pneumonia, but it was technically not ARDS. It was a little bit weird to prone her, uh, but her oxygenation was just so poor and we were kind of desperate. And so we did it. Um, uh, more on that soon. Uh, here are two reviews that some of our trainees have written. And uh, the one on the left corner I want to point out is one with almost all female authors. And it was um, based on the Neurocritical Care Society's Women in Neurocritical Care group uh, texting during the COVID pandemic and saying, geez, I have this patient with COVID um, and ARDS and they also have an EVD in, and do you guys prone them and what do you do? And uh, this is a group of neurointensivists from, I want to say, 11 different institutions that got together and compared their cases and uh, put this together for chess. And then on the right, this is a review that one of our fellows wrote, Asi Mateen. She's not the barrow. And she did a wonderful job talking about the evidence um, in um, and contrasting, uh, you know, the evidence in the ICU population or ICU population. Um, she, um, Kazra Sarhadi, one of our residents, made this figure. But uh, this is a nice figure looking at brain-lung interactions. And there's a lot of clinical and, you know, kind of macro, uh, as well as a lot of molecular mechanisms. And I think there's a lot of kind of interaction both both ways um, about inflammation, a neuroinflammation and systemic inflammation, and with blood-brain barrier disruptions, the brain-lung affect each other. Um, there's also just elevated ICP can 
uh, you know, and also in general, just sympathetic activation, sympathetic hyperactivity um, influenced the uh, capillary alveolar membrane uh, and is thought to cause this entity called neurogenic pulmonary edema. There's always a lot of debate about how it's a separate entity from ARDS, but, um, but, and there's some, a lot of animal research and pacifist studies that are very cool about that. I think ultimately, uh, it acts like ARDS and we treat it or manage it like ARDS. There's also hormonal mechanisms. Um, and then in general, just with, you know, you know, uh, increase, decreased respiratory drive, worse airway protection is just high risk of aspiration, pneumonia, atelectasis, and gas exchange. And there's so many commonalities. And when you look at patients with ARDS without known brain injury, a lot of them have long-term cognitive deficits, mood disorders. Um, some of that may just be, you know, especially in the COVID context, there may be some direct effect from that. But I think a lot of it is also just, um, there's so many confounders in really knowing what causes these kind of longer-term cognitive deficits. But I think certainly a lot of common ICU issues like polypharmacy, delirium, fever, you know, being hypertensive, being sedated, like none of that probably helps. I think it's very complex to really discern why that is. Um, so yes, talking about the brain-lung conflict. So what is different um, in patients with ARDS uh, that have severe acute brain injury versus not? So I think, again, I'll say this throughout like a broken record, but it's a concern for elevated ICP um, with LPV peep titration, trying to optimize driving pressure, prone positioning, and ECMO for various reasons that I'll go into. Uh, again, no one really knows what the best PO2 goals are for brain injury and presumably a little higher. But again, just cranking up the FI2 is also not a satisfying solution uh, at, at this point. Uh, sedation or muscular blockade if needed for event synchrony and to really help comply and make sure LPV is happening, um, can loss, can help, you know, contribute to losing the neuro exam. So depends on how concerned you are about certain features of that. Um, and then there's just all these logistical concerns that I mentioned with prone positioning, like what about the ICP monitor and, and this and that and the caller and all of that. Um, the volume status management is always an area because, you know, on the, you know, for, um, any lung injury, you want, you say dry lungs or happy lungs. Um, but there are uh, cases such as someone's cerebral vasospasm or someone that has a fresh large vessel occlusion where aggressive diuresis may be harmful. And then there's always kind of talks about using steroids. Steroids have become more of a thing in ARDS, especially since the COVID era and also DEXA ARDS. Um, but there's uh, not uh, great data in brain injury. Um, Yes, starting at here. So lung protective ventilation, the main concern is the permissive hypercapnia uh, and that uh, the low pH can also contribute to just lift, elevating cerebral blood flow, increasing ICPs. And, and again, this, the concerns about sedation PO2. Um, the ARMA trial excluded patients with elevated ICPs. Um, what I would say, though, that in the ARMA trial, um, ARMA compared uh, 4 to 6 cc's versus uh, 10 to 12 cc's and was kind of the key mark trial that found mortality benefit. If you look at the 4 to 6 cc's group, the PACO2s were actually not that high. They were actually kind of in the mid-40s, so not scandalous. I would say subsequently, uh, because there was found to be benefit, we um, now tolerate permissive hypercapnia. Um Traditionally, neurological patients, because of that, were actually often ventilated with higher tidal volumes um, because of the sphere. But there have been subsequent studies. Um, there was a bigger one by Eva Tejerina that showed that higher tidal volumes were associated with poor outcomes um, and also associated with development in ARDS, not surprisingly. And I think a lot of times there were these traditional thoughts, but the wider scale data seems to suggest that um, withholding these therapies is not beneficial, that we should act as in any other patients. But again, there may be individual patients that are on the brink of herniating that you know, may need a little bit more attention to the ICP. There was a recent randomized control trial looking at 27 patients, and they were just ventilated with six cc's per cakes per body weight with different levels of PEEP. 
um, they had minimal ICP elevations overall, and um, transpulmonary driving pressure was also, you know, in the five-ish for both groups. Um, but um, almost one in five, or a little more than one in five, required interruptions for ICP elevations. And those were the ones that had higher mechanical power and high baseline ICPs to begin with. Um, potential solutions, I think it's all risk-benefit. I'm going to dance around to potential solutions because we still don't really know, um, to be honest. But um, in general, we aim for a PC2. I think it's just important to be aware of the PSO2 and be very deliberate. Um, and if LPV is needed um, from an oxygenation standpoint, can be done. Uh, I think there's always that thought about, you know, trying to keep the PCA2 okay by then compensating, cranking up the respiratory rate. And I think the mechanical power studies kind of hint that that's maybe not the best solution. And there are studies, and again, high respiratory rate may be an indicator of disease severity, um, but it's not always thought to be the solution, but it, it is something that can be done if the PCA2 otherwise really can't be controlled. Um, I think in my mind, I also always see what the patient's compliance is. So in the patients that I presented, the first patient uh, really needed the lower tidal volumes and we couldn't touch the tidal volumes because the plats would just, you know, go up. Um, there are some patients that have a little bit of room on their compliance where you could kind of play around with it and try to find, uh, you know, a medium happy range with tidal volumes as low as possible. I think in patients where really there are concerns, there are pupillary changes, there's a scan suggesting it, there's, you know, it's a patient in the right time window. We always have a swell window and, TBI, ischemic stroke, hemorrhage. Um, and if they're in that critical window and there's a concerning scan, um, I think that's when a monitor may be worth it. Um, and I'll show a patient uh, in a moment uh, on ECMO where we put a monitor in uh, that actually tolerated PSU2 is higher than we thought. PSU2 is in the 50s or 60s, but the ICP was actually fine. Um, you know, auto studies can also be helpful in seeing, you know, what your ICP kind of yeah, you know, ranges and, you know, and then augmenting the map to really preserve CPP. But um, I think that, you know, in some patients, uh, you know, I'm not always for monitoring, but in patients where you don't have an exam, where you really have bad ARDS that need to utilize tidal volumes that, to the point that your PCA2s will be high, that are also at risk for herniating, that may be something um, where you consider a monitor. Um, peak titration. Um, there's a lot of very weird mixed data, but I think the rationale is that with increased intrathoracic pressure and also decreased jugular venous outflow, you have elevated ICPs. And then the PEEP can also obviously, by reducing MAP, decrease CPP. Um, studies are mostly small. It's mostly, um, you know, it's a lot of animal studies that show that, uh, you know, PEEP can increase ICP in recruitment maneuver scan. Um, the clinical studies that were done are mostly, you know, patients in the kind of on a range of the teens, 20s at the most. Uh, they're mixed types of brain injuries. The PEEP was often just taken up to 12, and I think in a few studies to 15, which, you know, yeah, 15 is decent, but um, but again, it's not the highest PEEPs, so um, people have been adequately cautious, and the results are mixed. A lot of them do show that there's an effect on ICP. Some showed that there isn't. Um, a few studies showed that the effect on ICP and CPP was mostly MAP dependent. So if MAP was preserved, uh, then usually um, CPP was preserved. Uh, and then also showed that, especially when cerebral autoregulation was impaired, the CPP tended to be more affected. Um, and it was also found that, especially when there was you know, low compliance or alveolar hypoinflation, there are some very cool studies looking at the static, the pressure volume curves and looking at that and then seeing um, if the ICPs are PEEP responsive. And there seem to be some correlations there. But again, they're very small studies. I think what's really important is, you know, as we do in any patient, but very deliberate PEEP titration, especially if there's concern for elevated ICPs, where we don't just kind of empirically like titrate it, but where we use kind of, you know, our balloon or our other maneuvers and, you know, and also look at the driving pressure and really avoid hyperinflation and really preserve the map. Kiara Raba published some really cool combined um, brain-lung ultrasound studies, where she did lung ultrasound and TCDs of the brain. Um, or optic nerve sheath diameter and kind of looked at changes uh, and also actually developed a long ultrasound score to predict how much peeps can affect ICP. 
But again, all small studies, more data is needed. Uh, prone positioning, you know, I talked a little about just the, the decreased head of bed, increased abdominal pressure, decreased outflow as higher ICPs, and then all the logistical concerns. Um, Perceva also excluded patients with elevated ICPs. And in acute brain injury, there's a number of small studies. Again, they're all kind of smaller, uh, mixed brain injury cord. Um, the proning duration is very short, and some might remember there were many studies, proning trials before Perceva that were negative that had much shorter proning durations. So the question is, is there even a point in proning someone for four hours or so? Um, but none of them even got close to the 16 hours in Perceva. Um, and there's just really no long-term outcomes. So I think what you see in those studies is, yes, when you prone someone, the ICP and CPP changes. And um, it's actually kind of uh, goes along with what I've observed. But if you look at the studies, it usually, um, when they describe time frames, they say usually the ICP goes up immediately when you're prone and is up for a few hours and at some point comes down or can be treated. Um, but yes, there's ICP changes. There's sometimes pretty substantial CPP changes seen, but you also see an almost imminent improvement, pretty substantial improvement in oxygenation. And when it was measured, also PBTO2. Um, so it seems like there's a trade-off. And again, there's no studies really showing how all of this affects long-term outcomes. In general, um, I mean, usually we don't, nobody prones for fun. Usually if you prone a patient, you have tried all of your other things. Um, and so usually I think it's worth an attempt. Um, you know, the question is whether you put an ICP monitor in or not. And I think my argument would be it's nice to see the physiology. And I think you could also treat with other measures to decompress, you know, the uh, another compartment in the brain and just, um, you know, treat the ICPs or, you know, you can then kind of augment the maps to, you know, titer to CPPs. But we don't really know. Um uh, you know, offloading abdominal pressure, you know, with weights, with, you know, good bowel regimen. And then sometimes if you really think you really can't prone or you're really concerned a patient is super unstable or there's just contraindications, uh, supine chest compressions with weight is also an alternative. Um, there was a cool paper in critical care medicine, a really neat, neat one from a couple of years ago. It had very nicely summarized the different studies. And again, you can here see the ICP values um, and then you know, how maps changed and then how also oxygenation changed. And that study, in addition uh, to doing the systematic review and showing all the studies, then also put forward a proposed proning and protocol for brain injured patients um, and kind of encouraged providers to consider it, but with various caveats. Um, ECMO, um, so this and uh, the images up here, the cartoons are provided by my kids, picked by my kids, uh, my five, my six-year-old daughter. Um, the scans here show a patient that... Um, had ERDS, uh, she was a long, young lady that had pancreatitis and aspirated and got bad ERDS and her PCO2 was in the 115s and she was transferred to us, put on ECMO. The PCO2 was very rapidly corrected and probably that caused some vasoconstriction and an almost kind of venous looking light hemorrhage. Her scan on the left was the initial one and you can see she has very little salsi and she actually blew both pupils. But her pupils came back after giving her mantol, and um, she was very hemodynamically unstable. So no neurosurgeon wanted to take her to the OR. So we actually put in an ICP monitor and medically managed her ICPs. Um, and she actually, after a few days, got a lot better, uh, which is super interesting. Um, concerns in general. Um, and this patient actually had a fem-fem configuration, but large neck uh, cannulas. Uh, fluctuations in PCO2 uh, that can cause, you know, rapid vasoconstriction, ischemia, or vasodilatation. Uh, and then the concerns also if someone has an ICH, you know, usually anticoagulate. Um, the data, and traditionally, I think often there was a hesitation to put patients with severe acute brain injury on ECMO because of uh, the presumed poor prognosis uh, and the combined uh, disease severity. But there are more and more case reports and now pediatric case reports with someone's been cranied, child's been cranied on ECMO and um, better outcomes and treatments are reported as it's utilized more. But I think it's still uh, a very dicey area uh, that probably requires a multidisciplinary team and very careful prognostic evaluation case by case. 
Uh, I can say that there was a consultant that saw this case above and uh, wrote optimized for brain death evaluation. And so I think um, it's just providers with experience that look at these cases nuanced and not, I think for us, actually what we witnessed was the case in the MICU and the neurosurgeons who consulted on this were just totally scared by the ECMO, whereas actually the RDS kind of was getting better, they were, but they were just terrified by the vasopressors, the ECMO, by everything. And I think um, the medical ICU providers were really concerned about the blown pupils. And so I think just that's kind of where you know, uh, neurointensivists, you know, general intensivists and ECMO team put their heads together. And um, that's usually when good decisions can be made, in my experience. Just avoid a very rapid sweep gas titration. And then in patients where it's concerned for ICP, you go with a FemFem cannula. Um, and uh, there's a lot of technological advances with ECMO and heparin-bonded circuits that allow us to transiently run patients without anticoagulation. Um Volume management, I spoke about a little earlier, just volume overload, pulmonary edema, just volume contributing to lung injury. And um, it's funny, when our neurocritical care fellows go and rotate in the unit, uh, in the MICU, they always come back and diarese everybody. They are so diuresis happy. And I have to sometimes tell them, like, oh, easy, it's ptosis and spasm, maybe. And the, the truth is, we don't know. I would say, uh, actually, there are data. There's, for example, in TBI, there's uh, big data out of central TBI, a uh, recent study that showed that uh, TBV, uh, higher positive volume uh, balance was associated with increased mortality. There's also a lot of studies that look at hypovolemia or actually more hypotension. And so I think that is the problem. I think we still don't have a magic way of perfectly assessing volume status. So if you look at a lot of these studies, I guess both hyper and hypo appear to be bad. The ways it was measured was often by TBB or blood pressures. And um, there's not a lot of kind of, you know, again, it's it's challenging to determine a critically ill patient's volume status and really put that, you know, translate that into, you know, higher volume data. Um, but both appear to be bad. Um, I think in general, um, I always think about when are critical time windows. So for example, the vasospasm window between day four and 10, uh, you know, you 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 know, you get other data points to see, you know, how much at risk is this patient and it's always risk and benefit. And those are patients where I make my team, you know, do point of care ultrasound, you know, we measure our PPVs. I have to admit I'm old enough to sometimes even want to look at a CVP still. Uh, but you know, where you, you know, you, you get your mixed venous, you get all of your, you know, data, your, you know, um, and your clinical impression um, and put that puzzle together and really try to maintain intravascular uvulemia. Um, and, you know, ideally don't too high, but also are a little bit less uh, aggressive about diuresis, at least for a certain time window. Um, likely, uh, this is, again, individualized target and things like CTA, CT perfusion, TCD could help to kind of stratify patients. Um, steroids. Um, there have been actually a lot of kind of older trials looking at steroids in various forms of acute brain injury and an ICH, acute ischemic stroke. Um, they're not thought to be beneficial on subarachnoid hemorrhage. There's some data around vasospasm, naturesis, but again, it's kind of low weak data. Uh, I would say that some of these trials did show higher medical side effects. And I think also extrapolating from the NASA's trials um, uh, that showed in spinal cord injury that high dose steroids were associated with medical side effects of various kinds. Um, steroids are usually, they're used to actually some kinds of brain injuries, vasogenic edema with brain tumors, meningitis, but not in the kind of, you know, uh, cytotoxic edema or acute brain injury. Um, there was actually meta-analysis showing some benefits in TBI. Um, and that meta-analysis was then kiboshed by a huge trial MRC crash uh, that then there was a new meta-analysis and MRC crash data swayed um, the data towards a bad outcome. But there was actually mortality benefit seen in a prior meta-analysis. But um uh, there was this MRC crash, this very large data set that showed a higher mortality with high-dose steroids and TBI. And so it's a, one of the few grade one recommendations that we have in the Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines is to not use high-dose steroids and TBI. Um, this was acute uh, across all GCSs. And I don't know, I feel like uh, the problem with uh, TBI is there's always this large trial. They always stratify by GCS. Uh, but a low GCS can be due to various mechanisms, including DAI, vasogenic edema with a contusion, 
uh, subdural epidural. And so I think, you know, unfortunately it wasn't stratified by that. Um, ARDS, there were actually numerous negative trials for steroids, but then DEXA ARDS, uh, right before COVID was a positive trial. And then there was a recovery trial and, um, you know, a meta-analysis of multiple trials in COVID and COVID ARDS steroids became more commonplace. And there's uh, all these trials about steroids and shock with some benefits here and there that, you know, are mixed results. And we, I'm sure you guys can dissect or have already dissected very much in detail. Um, in general, um, the problem, I think, is there's ARDS is not one thing. It's probably a whole umbrella of subpopulations in different hypo and hyperinflammatory forms. Uh, and, you know, if someone has like a bad fungal pneumonia, do you give steroids there or not? And I think the same is true for brain injury. Um, and so I think in, in general, I would probably avoid them in brain injury patients, especially in TBI. Uh, but there's always, you know, risks and benefits if someone is horribly adrenally insufficient and in septic shock and has a COVID pneumonia and a very mild TBI. Um, you know, it has to be a little case by case. So in general, always consider risk of elevated ICP, recess the risks and benefits over time. I think that's always key. Um, uh, because I think things are dynamic and, you know, one thing gets better, either the lung or the brain injury, and then you have to just kind of just reassess your plans and confuse the trainees you work on with. Um, you have to benefit, uh, balance the benefits of sedation or muscular blockade, such as vent synchrony, with how much you want certain parts of your exam. Um, consider, and I would say consider invasive, non-invasive monitoring. There was just a larger study that showed a prospective observational study that, um, you know, there were some, uh, you know, not a great uh, outcome benefit, uh, and, um, that there were some, um, you know, a lot of kind of side effects, uh, more sedation, more IC length of stay with invasive monitoring, uh, but utilize them. Um, you know, I always tell our trainees, order study, if it's going to change your management and tell me what you're going to do about it. Uh, but I think specifically if you have a concern around things like the PEEP or so, that's where you can kind of utilize them to get a little more information. Um, what we do with that data is also unfortunately not always clear. Um, again, consider high PO2 targets, but we're of hyperoxia and then, and, PEEP or LPV, just, you know, think about the PACO2, think about ICP, um, talked about prone positioning and ECMO, and then just daily multimodal volume status assessments and avoid steroids. Uh, in general, I would say not all acute brain injuries are equal. I think in TBI, we really think about CPP and ICP goals based on the brain trauma foundation guidelines and really, you know, um, this tiered approach. Uh, and subarachnoid hemorrhage after the initial stages of eruption hydrocephalus, I think in Lung injury, you always think about risk of vasospasm and DCI, but there's also patients that have neurogenic cardiomyopathy. And so I think you really need to think about the volume status and blood pressure goals. Um, in acute ischemic stroke, you want to think of the presence of especially proximal vascular stenosis, occlusions, whether someone was reperfused or not, or recanalized, uh, sorry, recanalized after the thrombectomy and what the risks for reperfusion injury. Um, and ICH is mainly about, you know, you want to monitor the exam for things like ICH expansion, hydrocephalus, herniation, you know, especially in patients with IVH or in patients that have a big, big ICH, and you need to think about how to monitor your neurologic exam. And then um, and um, cardiac arrest, uh, cardiac arrest and ARDS has a huge overlap, and I think up to half of those patients get some form of ARDS uh, based on the studies that you look at. And um, you know, cerebral edema in that context and concern for that. And, you know, we don't monitor traditionally as we do for TBI and, you know, and doing that in parallel with your neuroprop tests. And as your patient gets more unstable, they may not be able to travel to MRI, you know, get, you know, we sometimes do LPs here. Um, and so I think just kind of balancing that. 
um, wrapping up our cases. So case number one, we actually did prone him in a C collar. Uh, back down here is one of our APPs was amazing, Radha, um, who, um, found a massage pillow somewhere in a nursing office. And we actually put her in a C collar and proned her and tried it all out on her. And then we proned the patient between ortho and nursery. At some point I lost it and I paged everyone and everyone came and we proned him, um, with I think three surgeons holding him in midline. And every time he was prone and supinated, there was a provider that came from nursery or orthopedics. Uh, we had to prone him three times. He actually dramatically improved right after proning. Um, and actually with him, it was felt that also after we stopped the neuromuscular blockade, the drainage of secretions also got much better. And some of it was thought that it's just kind of better drainage of secretions with all that stuck kind of stuff stuck in his lungs. Uh, his ICPs were initially elevated and um, responded well to treatment. Uh, his monitor was eventually removed. He was extubated a few days later and he's actually back to work. He's a biomedical engineer. Um, the second case, so she actually, this lady went to bad days of spasm. She got two angiograms, treated with milrinone. Um, and we actually tried to, it was interesting because uh, we tried to keep her volume status even, but we actually, in the vasospasm period, let it run a little more on the positive side. Uh, very initially, when she became volume overloaded, we actually, actually didn't diurese her, but we just held her um, vasopressin because she was in bad DI. We kind of let some volume out. Um, her oxygenation eventually improved and she got extubated and she made it so well. Her ICPs remained elevated. And remember when I told you that the fellow was telling me, yeah, when we turn her head this way, her ICP goes up. And at some point we get a neck ultrasound and she had a large right IJ thrombus. So kudos to that fellow for being so observant. Uh, listen to your trainees and like listen to the little details and sometimes they matter. We started on anticoagulation and then we got a head CT just to make sure, you know, we're anticoagulating her, what's happening here. Uh, when looking at a head CT, unfortunately, she actually had developed bilateral ACA strokes. And these were areas that actually in a prior CT perfusion were lighting up and she actually had been plastied. And I would say this must have happened between um, an angio, you know, unfortunately, she had a very poor exam to follow. And I sometimes wonder if I should have pushed for repeated angios. But, you know, she went to angio, her angiogram didn't look so bad. Um, she got, you know, treated um, but between in the next subsequent days, must have developed those strokes. Uh, she's actually now somewhat better. She's alert. She tracks. She follows some commands. Um, she's a little spastic and weak on the right side, um, and intimately talks. But you know, it's very abulic and takes a long time. And took a long time to recover. All right, I'm going to jump into the last very brief part: um, excavation trach decisions. I think the honest answer is: is still a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of variation. You know. Predicting excavation, should we try to excavate this person or go straight to Drake? Uh, you know, the timing, when should we do it? Is it earlier better or is it better to wait? Um, and then, you know, what outcomes can we expect as we have these conversations? And in general, um, whereas neuro-ICU patients in general are not as commonly vented, invented neuro-ICU patients, Drake rates are higher. And that is because um, the need for Drake is often due to um, impaired airway protection in the context of decreased level of consciousness. And it's a surrogate of the severity of the brain injury. Um, in my mind, it's often the third critical decision point and an opportunity to really revisit goals of care. I think the first one being in the ER, someone needs a crash cranny or an EVD or a life or death intervention. And those are often very rapid and very black and white and often in our department run by the neurosurgeons. The second one's often kind of at the 24 to 48 hour mark. Someone's hospitalized family at the time to kind of go to go home, rest, you know, shower, come together, talk, come in. And there's a little bit more information about the patient. And then I think the third one usually happens kind of when we discuss a life-sustaining therapy, such as trach peg. Um, in general, you know, what predicts a successful ex extubation? This is, again, something that my, one of my fellows always keeps saying, one of our fellows, um, you know, thinking about causes, you know, the acute brain injury, like, where is it? 
you know, the two pro infratentorial, infratentorial ones are more likely to fail. And, you know, for various reasons, both level of consciousness and area protection in terms of cranial nerve dysfunction. Uh, you think about the exam, are they following commands? Are they alert? You think about the GCS and, you know, that is a little bit controversial. I show the data about that is mixed and the GCS, yes, matters because it is a surrogate for the neuro exam. But then you can also have a GCS that's falsely low on an aphasic patient or someone with an eyelid opening apraxia. Uh, you think also not just about cause, but imminent things. So from the first week, often there's some swelling or edema or ICP issues. You, you treat seizures and you optimize, you know, any other pulmonary causes. You assess oxygenation, ventilation. So the mnemonic was coves. Um, uh, you know, you think about the exam, again, wakefulness, but also things like eye movements and gag cuff, which are also surrogates for the eye movements are kind of higher up in the midbrain. So, you know, uh, close to the reticular activating system, um, the midbrain pons, and then gag cuff, you think about the respiratory drive, but also ability to kind of manage secretions. Uh, secretion burden, certainly, especially if the secretion burden is coupled with clinical concerns for pneumonia volume overload, and if it goes hand in hand with a poor exam, you know, you may have a little bit of a higher threshold to exhibit some of the highest secretion burden if they also have a poor exam, and then airway patency. Here's a summary of some of kind of the older trials, you know, again, uh, the exhibition failure rates vary a bit based on what they defined as failure and what time frames and also the population. Uh, but usually, you know, GCS and some trials was associated with excavation success. Um, and some of the larger prospective studies, it was not. So there was a Boston study from Chris Anderson looking at patients and they uh, looked at these four commands, closing eyes, two fingers, wiggling toes uh, and having a cough. Um, uh, there's a study by Godet and one by McCready that also showed that GCS was not uh, per se, but that gag and cough were uh, and eye movements in one of them. And then the largest study to date is this large extubation cohort from 73 ICUs in 18 countries. They looked at mixed types of brain injury and uh, a lower GCS, uh, lower than 12 or equal 12 before intubation, and that were ventilated for at least 24 hours and that did not get extubated for any terminal reasons, didn't have GBS or high C-spine injuries or any base and major respiratory comorbidities. And they looked at extubation failure by TAP5. And in general, just ICU mortality. And um, basically, out of these patients included, about 80% underwent an excavation attempt. And then out of these, a 19% failed. And this is kind of almost a little consistent with um, uh, the excavation failure rates that kind of, you know, that were in the kind of teens to 20s and the prior studies also. But 19.4% um, failed within five days. There were only a few more that failed beyond that. And they failed to mix uh, respiratory airway neurologic causes. I don't know how they discerned that because in my mind, if someone gets extubated and they have a really poor neurostatus and then they aspirate and get an aspiration pneumonia. Was that a neurologic failure, respiratory failure? Probably both. It did show wide variations that just reflect um, that, you know, there's you know not a clear guideline or practice in what to do or clear evidence. Uh, between countries, the extubation failure rates range between 0 and 28%. Uh, failure was less likely in younger patients, um, uh, TBI patients, uh, and, you know, it was higher in lower GCS. And then there was an exhibition success model. There was a 20-factor model and a simplified seven-factor model. And I listed the seven factors here. So vital signs, gag, suctioning, swallowing attempts, visual pursuit, prophylactic PT, and the motor GCS um, and GCS as well. Um, the 20-factor model is not particularly, you know, easy to use. And what I would also say, the areas under the curve are actually pretty bad for both of these models. So I think not a perfect model where you should stand at the bedside and put these things at a calculator, but these are all factors that run through our head as we make these decisions. Um, did out, out of the patients that directly went to trach, there was higher duration of mechanical ventilation mortality um, compared to all extubated patients, including success and failure. But I think that is also just the nature of prospective observational trial. I think if any of us says, you know, I'm not going to extubate that patient, you know, gee, I'm just going to trach him. There's usually something that that clinician is thinking and some sort of concern or higher severity. Um, there was a follow-up study, just now a sub-analysis of the study looking at 
uh, excavating non-invasive support for up to 24 hours and seeing if that's associated with better excavation success. And it wasn't. I have to say, I love high flow nasal cannula. I wish I would have invented this. Uh, but yeah, in this study, at least it didn't show. But, you know, we talk about excavation failure and failure always implies um, that, you know, there was a misjudgment made. And uh, if we think about it, 80% of these patients still passed. And I think the high failure rate just showed that we still need, you know, more information, more data on just, you know, prognosis. Looking at the flipped, there's a few clinical trig scores taking to count GCS and a radiological scale, deeper location, hydrocephalus, and shift. Um, there's also a study just looked at ICH, a clinical study that looked uh, COPD was an independent risk factor and things like you know obesity, but also just ICH volume uh, volume shift, uh, all markers of more substantial injury. Here's the set score used in many trials. And in terms of timing of tracheostomy, and um, I'm going to go a little bit over. Sorry, but I'm going to be done five minutes. Uh, in general, I think there's wide variations in practice, but I think a general kind of rule of thumb is like if a patient's still ventilated after a week and there's anticipation for longer term mechanical ventilation, but there's mixed data, controversial results, but I would say no clear evidence in favor of an early trach. Um, the largest uh, study or a larger study in the general critical care population treatment did not show any differences in 30 day mortality or even two year mortality or IC length of stay. Uh, but it showed um, that 37% only longer needed a trach of patients that were randomized to the late arm. Um, there was a meta-analysis of 10 RCTs and brain injury um, that maybe suggested mortality benefit. It was three studies, though, that looked at longer-term mortality. And when one that was thought to be biased was excluded, that went away. Um, there was a decrease in ICU length of stay with early trach. Um, and then there came the set-point trial. The set-point trial was a smaller single-center study in RCT of uh, 60 uh, patients with mixed types of stroke from Germany. Um, uh, the primary endpoint was ICU length, length of stay. That was not different. And there was actually no difference in most secondary outcomes, but there wasn't decreased a trend towards fewer opioids and a decreased need for sedation in the early group. And uh, differences in ICU mortality were found that were a little surprising. Uh, it was a small number of patients that was some withdrawal of life-sustaining treatment in the later group. Um, but then that led to the set point two study, which um, Nick is actually co-author on, and so University of Maryland was the site. And this is a really excellent uh, study. Um, you know, what was really cool is that they really looked uh, at patient and family-centric outcomes. It was a study in Germany and U.S. centers uh, looking at an early versus late trach. So early was you know, in my mind, very early because that's still when a lot of, you know, evolving things like, you know, cerebral edema and, you know, and swell watch and things like that happen. Um, but yes, they included mixed stroke types um, and uh, looked at six-month neurologic outcome as well as many, many secondary outcomes. And um, there's basically no difference in any of the primary or major secondary endpoints. But again, 22% of the patients randomized to the later group did not require a trach. Adverse events were about similar. And I would say I wasn't like that surprised by the primary outcome, although depending on how you, you know, the primary outcome was actually a modified ranking scale of zero to four, uh, which is a little different to what other trials do. And that was based on, um, you know, the kind of, it was like a PCORI grant that funded the study. And it was really like there was emphasis on patient, um, uh, you know, driven outcomes. Uh, what I find really surprising is in my mind, when you trach someone, you know, you move forward, they care. If you know they need a trach, do it, right? They come off sedation, they come off the vendor, so that's dead space, you know, you can mobilize them. It sounds so good. Um, but I was actually very surprised that there are not differences in uh, secondary points. And so I think, um, again, the first week's very early. I think what we know for now is, you know, waiting at least beyond the first week, um, you know, could get a few more people excavated and, um, you know, there's not a huge downside. Um, some, some folks still say, you know, what about TBI? TBI may be a bit different because there's all these stimulation, especially in younger TBIs, there's 
paroxysmal sympathetic hyperactivity, stimulation, ICPA issues. May some of those be better with a trach? Um, there's still randomized controlled data. There's a prospective registry that just showed wide variations. Uh, so um, trach rates were between 8 and 50%. Early trach range between 0 and 17%. The late trachs were associated with worse neurologic outcome. But again, this is a pros prospective observational study. So that may just be a marker of disease severity. And in terms of, you know, what are chances, you know, what are the outcomes when we talk about and make these decisions about whether we trach, you know, it's often a trach is just a relatively trivial procedure, very low complication rate. I mean, if the complications happen, they're serious. Uh, but in general, um, it's really a bridge to um, uh, giving a patient time and helping them achieve a neurologic outcome. And here's a few questions that I think all of you have encountered, you know, will they be vegetable? I don't like that term, but I get asked that, you know, will they need a wheelchair? Will they going to be in this machine forever? And so we did a meta-analysis looking at uh, 19 studies uh, with a goal to look at long-term neurologic outcome. And we found 35,000 patients from 10 countries. There were only five studies reporting primary neurologic outcomes. And we trichotomized independent, dependent, and dead. Uh, and what we did find, we expected to find a lot of um, disabled survivors. Uh, about a third of patients and 44% of survivors were independent. Um, so that was interesting. Um, however, if you think about it, you know, if you walked into a family meeting and said, you know, there's data that shows it's a meta-analysis, you know, it's obviously high heterogeneity. You know, a lot of these trials were subarachnoid hemorrhage patients. A lot of these were early versus late trials where a lot of the patients that got trained early probably didn't need the trade in the first place. But still, if you walk into a family meeting and like quoted that, you know, anyone would jump on, you know, 30% independence rate. But if you think about it, the majority still had a poor outcome. 36% were dependent and the remainder died. Um, the short-term mortality was lower compared to other general critical care uh, cohorts and something that is valuable is 79% of survivors were eventually decannulated. Um, looking back at the uh, set point two study, there's actually, you know, and this is a randomized control trial, there's a fair proportion between 40 and 50% of patients that had an MRS 4 or 5, so, you know, higher than what we found, in, you know, a slightly different population. One of those studies also, there's a longer term study that called patients actually up to two years after trach, and they found that the um, outcomes kind of plateaued at around a year, it didn't get that much better at two or three years, they just lost patients to follow up, um, and that um, there were differences in type of brain injury with patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage or TBI having much higher independence rate. Um, and that's confirmed also by there's a rehab study from 29 Italian rehabs that looked at the outcomes and patients with TBI did better than those with cerebrovascular disease. Um, they came in the best, they improved the most, they were the least likely to die, they got out the best. And, um, you know, patients with cardiac arrest improved very little at the highest mortality and decannulation rates were kind of also a similar pattern. I'm going to end here with uh, Will Lou, one of our Stoke fellows, actually did qualitative interviews with patients that received a trach with the caveat that we didn't interview patients that of families that chose against the trach. Um, and a lot of patients were relatively young. Um, but, um, you know, we interviewed them uh, a year later about kind of the decision to pursue a trach. And they said, you know, sometimes there were feelings of regret. regret. They were very subtle often. Um, but they often said, you know, the trach wasn't really a choice. They were in that window of not knowing we had to do it. And so this, this prognostic uncertainty really transcended the concept of having a choice. Uh, clear communication was always valued and when present. The families reported feeling more okay with the decision, regardless of the patient's outcome. So yeah, um, I'm going to end here. Um, sorry, I ran over a little bit. Uh, in general, again, we're in a data-free zone. Uh, just when you think about mechanical ventilation trials, often um, patients with brain injury are un underrepresented. We still need to identify those who are different and what we do with them. And we still don't have good data around long-term outcomes. In general, keep things normal. Hypoxemia, hypoxemia, hypocapnia, hypercapnia, bad. Um, you know, consider ICPs and uh, all kind of event parameters as listed below. Uh, and predicting successful exhibition just remains a challenge. 
um, there's no clear benefits of early trach and stroke, and there's still so many uncertainties in neuroprognostication um, that uh, hopefully, you know, we need to shed more light on as we have these conversations with our family. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, some of my amazing mentors, mentees, and colleagues, and our amazing NeurICU team. Um, questions? <laughs>